This is Daniel Self, lead pastor of the Orchard Church, and I'm so glad you're joining us today. Afterwards, if you would like and subscribe, or if you want more information on The Orchard or to support this ministry, find us at theorchardlife.com. Now know that we are praying for you today, that God would speak to you, and you would have a breakthrough. Well, we're, I'm so glad you're here for us, with us today. We're in this ancient book of Exodus. We are in chapter 20. We're looking at the Ten Commandments. And if you've been with us, then you've been seeing where God has been leading us through these people out of slavery. If you're new with us or you invited somebody, have you ever been to church and you go there and you invite a guest and you're like, please don't be weird, please don't be weird, please don't be weird. And they're like, today is Levitical skin diseases. And you're like, oh no, I promise it's not always like this. So today we're going into Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, 13 and 14, which is you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery. Welcome to the orchard. <laughs> you know, my prayer is that, and you know me, you know what we do in here. We like to look at the ancient text, see the context that God gave it in, and then pull it out and see what God has for us today. What does you shall not murder and you shall not commit adultery have to do with you? You might not even be married. And you're like, hey, half of this sermon's gonna be easy. I can't commit adultery and I don't plan on murdering anybody. I think that God has something for you before you leave this room, to be challenged, to grow, and be different than when you came in. God places these two commandments here in the Ten Commandments that shows his people how to live a healthy life. And it seems obvious, doesn't it? Hey, don't go around killing people and don't cheat. It seems really easy, but I want to take a minute and look at what it means in the cultural context back then and then what it means for us in our cultural context today and to see what that would look like. So this commandment, let's take the first one. Thou shalt not murder. Now the, the word, the Hebrew word for murder is ratzak. You got to get that. Let me hear you say it. Ratzak. There you go. Get it, you know, there you go. It means, so this would say, thou shalt not ratzak. Ratzak, murder, is vastly different. That word is vastly different than, the, than what it would say if it was do not kill. That's a different word. Some translations choose to go that way, but what it means is do not murder. In fact, the Old Testament has laws that allow for killing in certain contexts. I mean, they killed animals for food and for sacrifice. In Exodus, it talks about self-defense. Listen to this. If a thief is caught breaking in at night and struck a fatal blow, the defender is not guilty of bloodshed. It's not ratzak. Exodus also gives allowances for capital punishment under certain circumstances. A kidnapper, a murderer, in their culture, if proven guilty, would be put to death. There are even biblical passages about accidental death and accidental killings. And we have, we get this. We call it manslaughter or things like that, negligence. But it's not ratzak. So God clarifies that there is illegitimate and unwarranted killing, murder of another, and that that is against his design and that is against his purpose. You see, we are called to love God and we're called to love people as ourselves. And to ratzak is to transgress this fundamental foundational law of loving someone as yourself. Murder involves something often called premeditated intent. This means it is the act of killing another human. It was committed with a motive and a disregard that's often there, a disregard for their life, regarding your motive greater than their life. 
disregarding a life that God has declared good and sacred. So Ratzak, at its core, is stopping someone else's heartbeat for selfish motives, whether that is anger, whether that is malice, or whether that is indifference. And we get this. We understand this if we take it in our culture. Killing and murder are different in the Old Testament, but also in our culture, we have manslaughter and first-degree murder. We get there is a difference. And the difference is the motive and the cause. God makes it clear. Do not ratzak. He says, I am the creator. I give life. I have given life to people and so respect the life that I have granted. Don't cut a life short in a way that disregards what I have deemed sacred. Do not take a life from the motive of anger. Do not take a life from the motive of selfishness. And that's the command. Thou shalt not murder. Rutsak. It seems pretty open and pretty shut. There's lots of writings in the Old Testament. There's lots of other areas where it talks about what it means, what it doesn't mean. But for the most part, don't murder. In our context, we get it. Which leads us to the next commandment. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And this also seems really easy. Like, don't commit sexual relations with anyone other than your spouse. And why is this in here? Because God declared that marriage would be a sacred covenant. Did you know marriage, despite what your experience is, marriage was God's idea, and marriage is what God said leads to a healthy and fruitful life? God's intent was for a husband and wife to make a covenant vow, a promise to each other, that inside the covenant bonds of marriage, there would be love, there would be freedom and redemption. Those are the hallmarks of a marriage that is working as God intended. Marriage is much more than a piece of paper. Marriage isn't the, isn't the government's idea. It's God's idea. And at its heart, it is a soul, spiritual heart bond. Our hearts, our lives thrive most when we are in a healthy, loving, and supportive marriage. In God's, now, not always. I know there are many different nuances and circumstances. I'm talking generally here. In God's design for marriage, loving him with all your heart leads to loving your spouse as yourself. Remember, we have the verse, love God, love people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love others as yourself. Love God above all things and love your spouse as yourself. That's how it works best. In fact, when marriage gets rocky, it is because one or both spouses have not put God first as the ultimate law and priority. And so here is some marriage counseling. I'm going to give this, and you can each afterwards, I'll bill you for an hour, okay? Love God first and foremost, and love your husband or wife as yourself. Boom, counseled. Go forth and be happy. Now, we know it's a lot more complicated than that, but we were designed to be most uh, fulfilled and healthy when we are loving God first and foremost with all that we are, and then from that, loving our spouse as ourself. But I want to look culturally at what God is speaking to and why he puts this in there. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And then one of the reasons, because when Exodus 20 was written in Moses' time, there were mountains of baggage around marriage and what it meant and, and, and who could do what and who was worth what. There was concubines, which is not something that's very common now. There was polygamy. There was rampant divorce. 
many different issues. And yet in that, in that culture, God gives this commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And he places honor and significance on a monogamous marriage covenant. He's saying, do not dishonor what God has declared sacred by stepping outside of the wedding vows. Honor your God and honor your spouse by honoring the covenant. Just like murder was do not take lightly or indifferently cut off a life that God created and knit together and declared sacred, so adultery is not to take lightly or indifferently cut off a union that God had knit together and declared sacred. Both of these have to do with God declaring something worthy and that we are not to, either through negligence or malice or indifference, cut those off. These two commandments teach us not to make selfish decisions when it comes to taking another life. These two commandments teach us not to make selfish decisions when it comes to honoring our marriage and our covenant. But pastor, we live in a different day and age. Exodus 20 is so old school. Uh, we, that's such antiquated views on relationships and life. I mean, what even is a human life these days? Our modern culture is so superiorly nuanced now, and, and being monogamous in marriage, that is, well, that's just so old-fashioned. Yes, our culture has moved way beyond these commands. You're right. Like so many cultures before us, we have moved away from God's truth out of our own human cravings and our justification of it. In modern Western society, we are now told not to first and foremost follow God's truth. We are told, our culture tells us, seek your own truth. Find your truth. And if your truth and my truth fundamentally disagree, they're both still true. Ever thought of that? How can two tr truths fundamentally disagree, and still be truth. You see, we have lost the definition for truth. I mean, what if God's truth and your truth disagree? How can they both be defined as truth? Truth by its nature is singular. Jesus declared, I am the truth, not I am a truth. So in our culture, if, if our culture was honest, we would know that when someone says, find and seek your truth. What that really means is, what it truly means is, find what makes you happy and call it truth. We are encouraged in our culture to seek and to find and to follow our happiness above all things. And that leads to a worldview that if there's a loving God out there, well, guess what? He would not want me to be unhappy. A loving God would never want me to be unhappy. And if I don't want to be unhappy, and God doesn't want me to be unhappy, then any decision I make that makes me happy, I can justify it. And I can call it truth. My truth. Even if it treats lightly the sacredness of life and the sanctity of marriage. You see, we have to make, if, if, if we do have to make a decision between our happiness in God's truth. If you did have to make a decision between your happiness and God's truth, 
What would the culture celebrate? What do we most often choose? Let me make it personal. When it comes to the things we're going to talk about today, some of this is God asking us out of love to follow his way and his purpose. Some of these things you might say, I don't like it. And so you will have a decision to make. Do I follow what God says is true or what I have called my truth and happiness? You see, we need only to look at our modern culture and the statistics of different types of killings and of infidelity to see that we are a far cry from even that ancient Exodus commandment. And the fact that as a modern culture, we can confidently justify ourselves in areas of ratzak murder and adultery that are contrary to God's design, that says much more about us and our culture than it does about his truth being antiquated. Jesus knew this. Jesus knew these things. The culture he walked into was one that treated these very things so lightly. His culture was outwardly religious, as many of ours can be. They tried to follow the Ten Commandments and did so superficially. What Jesus was dealing with was a people who never physically murdered another person, but whose hearts and minds were far from bloody. What Jesus was dealing with was a people who had never physically committed the act of adultery, but whose minds were far from flesh free, much like our culture today. You see, Jesus steps into our reality and he does something absolutely shocking. The Ten Commandments were given in Exodus 20 by the voice, by the hand, and by the authority of God himself. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. And for over 1,500 years, that was the highest bar for morality, the Ten Commandments. And then Jesus comes to earth, and what does he do? He changes them. Jesus came into our world fully God incarnate. He's the living God in flesh, and he shows us what it looks like to fulfill the Old Testament, to fulfill the morality and the virtue. And then in the gospel in the New Testament, we find him doing that very thing and teaching. And as any good teacher, what does he teach about? The Ten Commandments. But unlike any other teacher, he's about to do something so scandalous, so shocking, we can barely wrap our heads around it. He takes these Ten Commandments out of religious external duty and instead makes it about our spiritual life, our thought life, our emotional life. And instead of only applying to those who are married or killing someone, it applies to every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every human. So listen to Jesus as he reframes, redefines, and reestablishes these two commandments. The words of Jesus I'm about to give you would be absolutely scandalous when they were received. I want you to hear this. Before I get there, I also want you to feel free, not during the service, because you're going to want to, not read further, but to go look at Matthew 5 and read the entirety of it to get the context and the rest of the teaching that I had to cut for timing. Matthew 5.21 and 5.27, Jesus says, you've heard it said to a people long ago in Exodus 20, where we are, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say... 
If you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Whew. 27. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Oh my goodness. But, but, but I, I, thought, I, I thought we were talking about like, you know, murdering and, uh, you know, not committing adultery. And now Jesus is telling us that we're in danger of like, these fires if we're angry at somebody or looking lustfully. Like what in the world is Jesus doing here? And I'm glad you asked that. Because you're in great company of confused and condemned people who've heard these things and read these verses over the years and tried to figure out what it meant for them. And the people who first heard Jesus deliver this in person, can you imagine their response? It was fresh. They'd always heard the Ten Commandments and all of a sudden, wait, wait, what? And they said what you might be thinking right now. Whoa, whoa. I was cool with this Jesus guy. When he's talking about, hey, love people and go to heaven. But, but what is this? This is too much. I'm uncomfortable with this Jesus. And I believe Jesus said these, thing, these things to make people uncomfortable. You see, in the culture it was delivered, people were far too comfortable allowing their anger and bitterness and hurt to rule their inner life, affect their relationships, and how they spoke about and to other people. They were far too comfortable disregarding marriage vows. Divorce rates back then were through the roof. Priests and Pharisees and followers of the law were the leaders in this. In fact, an ancient rabbi named Hillel he was one of the most influential rabbis of the Hebrew tradition. He was so lenient on divorce that he has lots of writings about it. And listen to this one. A man can divorce his wife if she spoils his food at dinner. If you mess up the recipe, I've had enough. I can't take it anymore. And they use the Bible to justify this. In fact, there, there was writing, they could give their wife a certificate of divorce solely because they found another woman more appealing. Theologian Tim Mackey discusses how they got around this law of do not commit adultery because they wanted to remain pure and holy. And so a married man of this time, this, he could see a woman he was attracted to. He could go home and he could give his wife a certificate of divorce. He could then go out and date and sleep, go to Vegas for the weekend, do whatever he wanted, have all the fun until it wore off or until the timing was up, and then come back and tear up a certificate of marriage and be married again. And got right around committing adultery because, hey, we were on a break, right? Truly, a culture that had gotten comfortable following the religious rule on the outside, but living something far from it on the inside. This culture would find loopholes. They created exceptions. They changed the law to allow them to feel okay and justified by treating lightly the sanctity of marriage and the sacredness of life. 
That's the culture Jesus throws this bombshell into. Now, our culture. Do you think that we've found some loopholes, created some cultural exceptions, and even changed laws that allow us to treat lightly the sanctity of marriage and the sacredness of life? Let's put the teaching aside for a second and make it personal this morning. Don't, Jesus says, don't be angry or bitter towards somebody and don't lust in your mind. And before I continue, one more word. I want to say something very important. If you're listening here in the room or somewhere else and you're thinking about somebody else who really needs to hear this, I want you to do something courageous this morning and put all other people out of your mind concerning this topic and instead pick up a mirror because Jesus has something for you and me and each of us. These commandments go side by side because so often they go side by side in life and in counseling. So many times I'm, there's one spouse who's battling lust and the other spouse is feeling justified in their bitterness toward them for it. And if you're listening and you feel justified in your anger towards a person, I get it. I get it. These are difficult situations. But courageously this morning, or when you're listening, put down your sword and pick up a mirror. Because Jesus claims that both lust and bitterness have the same danger in life and destruction in relationships and beyond. He says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, do not commit adultery. But I say, do not be angry, bitterness and lustful. Jesus clarifies that bitterness and lust are no longer only about external action, but now about internal condition. The two commandments are no longer just about external action, but about our internal condition. Yes, murder is absolutely a violation of God's design, but he reveals that to detest someone, to resent them, to have anger and ongoing bitterness toward them in your heart is also a violation of his purpose. The root of violence is anger. The root of murder is selfishness. Yes, adultery is absolutely a violation of God's design. And he reveals that a mind inflamed by lust and sexual desire and sexual fantasy is also a violation of his design. The root of sexual deceitfulness is lust. And the root of adultery is selfishness. Both of these come with internal fantasy. Both of these commandments come with internal fantasy. We know lust. Let me, let me put this. We say love God and love people. Here's how they transgress love people. Lust is using another person in our own mind for our own pleasure. And anger fantasies are abusing another person in our own mind for our own pleasure. What is an anger fantasy, you ask? Oh, they are those arguments you win in front of the shampoo bottles. You know, when you're in the shower and you let that person have it. And you say just the right thing, or you eviscerate them in front of the, and you just, it's an anger fantasy. Anger fantasy and lust fantasy. Jesus talks about these things in our heart. It is not just about the external action, it's about the internal condition. 
Jesus addresses the root cause of both these commandments to a people who've made a life out of being angry and being lustful, but are proud. They didn't murder and they didn't cheat. He says, it's not the way it goes. So putting these ancient Exodus 20 commandments through love God and love people requires those of us who harbor resentment and even justified bitterness towards another to take an honest look at the condition of our heart, of our love for people, and our thought life. Am I murdering somebody's character or self-worth with my thoughts? Am I murdering somebody with my words to them or especially about them? Where I go out and I talk about somebody to get triangulation, to have somebody go, you're right, they are bad. (laughs) There we go. Am I murdering people with my thoughts toward them, words toward them, about them, or actions? Putting these ancient Exodus commandments through the love God, love people filter requires those of us who justify our lust to take an honest look at the condition of our heart and our thought life. Am I using someone else to fulfill my sexual desires mentally, visually, emotionally, and physically? Jesus calls us out of our cultural indoctrination of doing whatever makes us happy. Jesus calls us out of our religious justification of harboring judgment. He calls us out of our selfish motivations for pornography and lust. He calls us out of our deepest hurts of betrayal and defensible anger. He calls us out of our private lives of sensual secret satisfaction. He calls us out of the dark places where we hide our bitterness and our hurt towards others. And he invites us to come to the light. If you have an inner world of lust kept in private places, kept in dark corners away from others, the way to freedom is to bring it to the light. I have been a human for a long time now. I have battled my inner world and thought life since I can remember. And I am at my healthiest and I am at my best when I am open to a very few select other men about my struggles, battles, and losses in this area. A private life left to itself will lead to failure. Here's a formula for you. Privacy plus time equals failure. Now you might think that you, your privacy is okay and you might think that you have enough time, but given those two things together, we will find ourselves making decisions we never would have imagined before. The answer to short-circuit that is to turn my secret life into a shared life. To admit to others where I struggle, where I battle these inner temptations. I find that in my honesty, I am strengthened. And in community, I am supported. But I I don't say this lightly. There is nothing more terrifying than being honest about these places in our hearts and minds. Nothing. The amount of courage it takes to speak authentically and vulnerably about our private lives when it concerns lust and secret sin, it's terrifying. There's freedom on the other side of that. 
Listen to this verse about this in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20, as it talks about how important this is. Run, flee from sexual sin. No other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. For sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives within you and was given to you by God? You don't belong to yourself. You were bought with a high price. That's Jesus. So you must honor God with your body. Jesus created us for sex. He created us with these desires. And they are most healthy when in the bonds and bounds that he created for us. And he knows that there is no pain like when they go outside of the boundaries. Nothing harms the human heart and soul and body like inappropriate or unmanaged lust and sex in these areas. Men and women, it's time to stop justifying our lustful private life. Jesus is clear. It's not a gray area. Before it was a gray area. Hey, just don't commit adultery. And then he says, oh, don't think these thoughts. Take these thoughts. Get public with them. Share them. Find God in his word. Be strengthened. Find freedom. Be honest. Be vulnerable. It takes courage to take a secret life to a shared life. I get it. But there is strength and freedom in the process. Men especially, I'm praying that you can open up to someone you trust about these issues. Women as well. What about anger and resentment and the inner fantasies and bitterness towards others? Ephesians 4.26 says, don't sin by letting anger control you. Don't let the sun go down while you're still angry for anger gives a foothold to the devil. So as Jesus is talking about anger and bitterness and these things, don't let it control you and, and don't let your days pass by stewing on something because anger, when you let it fester, it gives a foothold. To who? Your enemy. The one who wants to rob your peace, rob your joy. Have you ever been in such a place, and I've been here, where somebody has such a hold in your heart that there they are just going through their life, living, and you just see them and go, oh, look at that person over there just breathing. Look at the way they breathe. You know what I'm saying? Have you ever been there? Are you there? Hey, that's a little indication, a foothold that there's bitterness and anger. Anger is a place that the enemy of God can sneak in and begin to take ground in our hearts that we are unaware of. So it's important to open up to healthy people or a counselor. Not to get justification or triangulation for your anger. I've seen people open up just to have someone agree with them and justify their anger. Open up to healthy people who don't, justify your anger, but help you move beyond your anger. I'm going to end this by saying that this teaching, I admit it, it falls absolutely so short of, of all we could go into. We could do another month on this topic. I'm sure that you're glad we're not going to. Line up the lust and anger messages, Pastor. I'm here for it. This teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5, I'd encourage you to, in your groups and in your private life to dig in. It's a deep pool to, to swim in. And also, there's, we need a mirror to look into these things. James says, don't look in the mirror of God's word and then leave and do nothing. Like, like adjust yourself to the truth. When you see God's truth and your truth or happiness don't agree, it's up to us. You have two choices. You can justify and continue or adjust. My prayer today is that we adjust some things.
So while I can't do all the teaching today, I do have my own experiences. I have battles for purity against lust of my mind in our culture. I have deep experience with infidelity and betrayal. I was married before my wife Amy back when I was in Atlanta to a woman who was chronically unfaithful from our first year to our last. If you're new here and you're shocked by this, like, it's okay. If you're looking around like, what did he say? No, no, we're the orchard. We're used to these things. Like in the orchard, here's what we we commit to do. We're going to be authentically vulnerable and we're going to be courageously authentic. And so you can too about your struggles and where you've been. But I've been through these things and my story is a place where God has given me great strength and I don't run from them anymore. But in my previous marriage, my, when my wife was unfaithful, there was a lot of uh, pain. There's a lot there. I know the sting of this commandment about adultery. I also know the power of lust and secret inner life. I know the hurt of betrayal. And I know that unfathomable, justified bitterness and anger where you feel like no preacher can tell you to let go of it because you earned this anger. If you only knew what they did. The guy up there talking has no idea. I do. I know how anger can feel so justified. I know the trap of lust and misplaced sexual desire. So when I ask you today how you're doing with these things, I walk with you. And I have walked in these places. Because wrestling through the fallout of all that that was in those difficult battles, that was one of the most painful seasons I've ever faced. And in my life, I've seen many counselors paid a lot of money to great people to, to, to get these things out and talk about them. And there's one moment I'll never forget. I was telling this new counselor all I'd been through, all the sin, all the hurt, all the things I was doing and how they were all justified because of, of what she did and how terrible that was and the anger and the resentment. And, and I was hoping this counselor, you know, would see, hear this and, and, and see all that I've gone through in my life and, and recognize this guy's he's been through a lot. It's a difficult road. He's justified. And after I was done with all that, I was, I was telling him all the ways that life had failed me, that marriage had failed me, that God had failed me, that I had failed myself. And the counselor looked at me and says, I think all that is true. What are you going to do from this point on to move toward being a healthy person? Did you just hear? Like, did you hear all that stuff? Let's talk about that stuff. And it hurt like them. Now let's talk about you moving forward. <laughs> and what I began to see is there's only one person I'm going to live with the rest of my life inside of with their thoughts and their feelings. And that's me. There's only one person who I can prioritize loving God and loving people. There's only one person whose secret private life I have full access to it was the beginning of a new way of looking at my life and my story. It was a pivotal moment when I stopped excusing my inner world and stopped blaming other people in my past and finally took responsibility for my present and my future. I would no longer let my private life rule me and no longer let my bitterness and justified anger make my decisions for me in the present and the future. On the advice of some very wise people, here's what I did. In my private struggles, I chose to be open and honest with the right people. In my anger and bitterness, I chose to be open and honest with the right people. 
and in my spiritual life in pursuit of God, I stopped trying to find justification in his word and reading the Bible with other people in mind. Man, so messed up though where I was. Reading this, trying to find justification and reading this with other people in mind. And I started just letting that stuff, listen, I started to pursue God, not as a system of beliefs, but as a personal God who I would talk to and cry to and, and, and yell at and get angry at. Out of all those hurts and deep places, a God who I would go to with my inner life, had discussions about my secret life, and I began to read the word, not for justification, but to find his nature, to find who he is and who he says I am and who he's calling me to be. And then the, the question is, when you find truth, will you justify where you are or will you adjust to where he wants you to go? And that's where we are today. That's where we are anytime we find God's truth. Will you leave this place justified in your actions or adjusting to his truth? These are the two areas for you to step courageously into today. Number one, pursue God in a new way. Not as a religious rule keeper, but as a personal relationship. Start to read his word. If you're reading his word, read it to find his nature and his identity and who he says you are. And when you find his truth, adjust to it. Number two, pursue godly community. And I mean really. Be vulnerable and be honest about your private life. Make your secret life a shared life somewhere. We are only as sick as our secrets. So get them out. Men, leave this place and get honest about your inner life where it's destroying you, where it's destroying your relationships, where it's hurting those you love the most, even if you can't see it. Women, Leave this place and get honest about your inner life where it's hurting you and destroying you and hurting those you love the most, even if you can't see it. I encourage you to text or call somebody and set this up and, and, and talk about these things, professional or personal. We say in our house, we say, we say, talk it out with somebody or you will take it out on somebody. And that is especially true when it comes to your anger and your bitterness, and your lust in your private life. So he says, do not murder. Thou shalt not murder. But don't be someone of bitterness and anger and rage. No matter how justified, it's not God's purpose and calling for you. Thou shalt not commit adultery and in your private life. Don't lust. Pursue purity and holiness in your heart and mind. It's time for each of us to get honest in these areas. There is a lot of condemnation available on days like this. There's a lot of condemnation. You can hear whether you're in the house or listening on later, where you hear this and go, oh my, I am just the worst. And the greatest news is that there is common ground because of Jesus Christ. Can we put that verse up? Every one of us has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus, thank God, when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Everyone is sin and we all fall short. I don't care whether it's lust or whether it's anger. We are on common ground at the foot of the cross. We all need Jesus. 
And thanks to Jesus, it's not condemnation on you, it's conviction to come to him and change. So as we sing this last song, it's a song about may we be those who love God and love people as ourselves, not murdering with our thoughts and our words, not not using and abusing people with our fantasy, whether it be lust or anger. Let us love God and love people, not just on our t-shirts and externally, but in our thoughts, in our hearts, in our inner life. Let me pray for you. Father God, uh, what a hard topic. What a difficult teaching your son gave. I pray that your grace would win the day and that your grace would remind us we are forgiven and loved and we are called forth from dark places into light. May you give the orchard great courage to get vulnerable, to get honest. In Jesus' name, amen. If you take communion this morning as you sit there with the the symbol of Jesus' blood and body, take a moment to ask his forgiveness for any places of sin in this area you would need to and then thank him for his sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood for a new covenant and forgiveness of sins.